0: Broadcasting from the historic Hayburn building in downtown Louisville, it's time for single payer radio. We're a project of Kentuckians for single payer healthcare, and we are an affiliate of the Kentucky chapter of Physicians for a National Health Plan. And we're a long-standing member, a community partner with Forward Radio WFMP LP 106.5. I'm Mark McKinley, a volunteer with the group. Just want to emphasize that the views and opinions expressed here on single-payer radio are those of the speakers and not the station. Real quickly, uh, the uh, uh, Build Back Better uh, plan is in play right now. They're getting ready to vote on that. Today is, we're recording Friday, November the 19th. In that plan, there is a healthcare infrastructure and workforce component, 160 million dollars for community health centers in underserved areas, medical schools in underserved areas, National Health Service Corps, Nurses Corps, uh, many areas, Gene, that could really help out our Rural communities. Yes, and I looked at the uh, press release from the American Farm Bureau; they oppose this bill. So, there's that piece of it. And then uh, this morning in the Courier Journal, a Humana representative was able to promote their Medicare Advantage plans, which are part of a Wall Street takeover of Medicare to the veterans community. So with that, Dr. Flynn, Dr. Shively, it's all yours.
1: Let let the games begin. Uh, This is Michael Flynn. Let me begin with the usual disclaimer that uh, any comments that I make represent my personal views and do not represent the views of the University of Louisville or the Department of Surgery.
2: I'm Eugene Shively. The views that I state do not represent Taylor Regional Hospital nor the Department of Surgery at University of Louisville. Mark, I just got a, a comment on you, what you just said about the Advantage plans. They now represent almost uh, half. I think it's 47% of all the uh, Medicare plans. The uh, plans with veterans um, is very, very interesting. I've seen a bunch of patients who are on this. and I have yet to found anyone who quite understands it. Uh, Some of the patients are going to VA hospitals, and then they also have private uh, physicians, and um, nobody seems to know where the money's coming from or exactly where the money's going
1: yeah, well listen guys let's not get off the topic here okay. we, we need to talk about i, this. I just had to respond another, to that. another okay. time you know? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> all right so our topic today is is a, a fairly controversial one um you know it's on lgbtq and diversity issues which as we all know from all of the stuff that's been going on in the news uh in this country are our major uh major issues We have a special guest today, Um, Dr. Gansel, Tony Gansel is the Dean of the University of Louisville uh, School of Medicine. Uh, Before that, she was an ENT, an otolaryngologic surgeon. Uh, She was a director of the Division of Otolaryngology at the University of Louisville. Uh, In addition to her uh, medical degree, she has a Master's in Business Administration. So Tony, we are grateful that you're here to talk to us about these issues. Uh, I know the University of Louisville has had some special recognition uh, in, in, the, in the diversity aspect of it. And uh, uh, maybe we can get to that a little bit later on, but as we've done with guests in the past, we'd like to give you an opportunity to make whatever comments you'd like to make for as long as you'd like to make. on on these issues and then the conversation will begin. So the floor is yours.
3: Well, thank you very much, Mike. I appreciate uh, the opportunity to be here. I guess there are two parts to this from the School of Medicine perspective. As a school, we want to be welcoming and inclusive to all students, faculty, staff, regardless of race, ethnicity, Um, uh, sexual orientation, uh, uh, sexual identity, et cetera. So I think that that's one piece of it. If you look at the business literature, more diverse organizations are more highly performing. You know, diversity of thought, um, uh, diversity of background. And so I think that that's one piece of it. We want to be welcoming to all. The other piece is really related to health equity. Um, we are going to be um, uh, educating the next generation of physicians. And it's important that our physicians be competent, um, culturally competent around um, populations that experience health disparities. And I don't think I really appreciated it. Before we started our LGBT um, uh, competent health competency curriculum, I don't think that I personally appreciated the um, uh, the degree of health disparities that were experienced by our LGBTQ um, patients, and so I think that that it's important for physicians to understand that we we certainly want to promote health equity. You know, you're you're entire radio station about single payer, about access, about um, uh, uh, care for all is is consistent uh, with this. So they're based on um, evidence and scientific background. There were a series of um, competencies that our Association of American Medical Colleges um, uh, uh, recommended that um, physicians be aware of, and this was a curriculum that we have um, uh, put into place as part of our cultural competency uh, curriculum for our uh, for our students. Uh, so we we have um, uh, received some recognition for this, um, and it is important that uh, that. This be part of our uh, be part of our curriculum, and it's you know the having uh, cultural competency in your curriculum is something that's absolutely expected by our accrediting body.
1: Uh, Tony, while you're, I'm going to let Gene have a shot at you in just a moment. But since you br- brought that up, the U has received a called a, it was a higher education excellence in diversity award on a, on a number of occasions. So, could you make a few comments, uh, you know, about about that award, the origination of it, where it comes from, and then maybe explain some of the uh, the policies, the procedures, or the administrative activities that U of L has done that results has resulted in this recognition.
3: So this this HEED Award, H-E-E-D, Higher (laughs) Education Excellence in Diversity, is an overarching university award. So um, uh, I'm not positive of the organization that that, uh, distributes this, um, but my understanding is they look at things like programs and practices and infrastructure in place support um, uh, uh, services for students uh, and probably look at uh, satisfaction of students who self-identify as uh, LGBTQ. Um, but, but in terms of the specific things, I can't tell you that.
1: Okay, Jane.
2: Um, I was interested in the fact that, let's say in OBGYN, there are lots more women in OBGYN than there are men now. Mm-hmm. Should the, does that mean that uh, medical schools and uh, they uh, should strive to get more men into OBGYN? Are we talking about that equality or are we just talking about getting equality, equal quality of men and women and other minorities uh, in the classes of medical schools.
3: Well, um, I think that, that there are different things going on. Certainly there are far more women that go into OBGYN than men. And that is a choice. You know, students decide what specialty they're going to go into and, um, and, and patients decide who they're more likely to want to see as a doctor. And in general, at least contemporary women, um, uh, you know, in the, uh, oh, I would say probably 20 to um, uh, 40s and 50s do express an interest that they would rather see a female OBGYN. So so I guess the question is, are we doing a disservice to society? by not having an equal number of men and women in OBGYN. So I don't know. And I think likewise, there are far more men that go into urology than than women. And and again, that is a choice And, and in general, Men express more interest in, in going to a male urologist than a female urologist. So some of this is choice. Some of it is patient choice. Um, so I, I, I think that if you look at equal numbers as a, def, as a destination for numbers, it's probably not a legitimate driver uh, for things. If... Um, and, and Mike will talk about our, our field of surgery. You know, it was um, absolutely male dominated, decades and decades. Uh, there was a push to encourage more women to go into surgery. And I think that that has been, um, uh, that has seen some success. Uh, and, and it is, I, I think that there was a sense, you know, for the American College of Surgeons, for the American Board of Surgery, that, that surgery did need to diverse, d- diversify a bit um, uh, as it relates to, uh, uh, to gender. And they felt that would be a value added thing, not just because, well, the numbers have to be the same, but um, uh, it is important to, to have a diverse workforce.
1: Uh, Tony, I absolutely I agree with you on, on two issues. Uh, num- number one, I think the surgery department uh, at UofL has done a really good job in in recent years, I'm just thinking back, and over the last five or six years, the there are four years, three in a row, I think, and one with a skip, in which the uh, the administrative resident uh, was a woman, and 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 one of them was a black woman. So I mean, these they, right. we 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 haven't done a bad job here at all.
3: No, we haven't. And you, and um, Dr. McMasters, as the department chair, has been very intentional about wanting to diversify the faculty. He just hired an incredible um, woman trauma surgeon, academic trauma surgeon, and we're really excited about having her on, on faculty.
1: Now, in JAMA, uh, in uh, January, there was an article I was reading that indicated that um, about 5% of physicians in this country are black. And the population of this country is 13 or 14% black. Uh, So two questions here. One, do you have any statistics, similar statistics about Hispanic and Asian populations that may not be a fair question for you? And if you don't, we can just skip over it. And the other part of that question is how? What are the issues, the barriers to getting more black medical students or more black students into medical school, and and how how is the University of Louisville uh, uh, addressing that issue?
3: Um, The the statistics on um, uh, black and Hispanic Latinx. Um, at least at U of L, um, uh, if I look at our student population, about ten percent of our students are Black. Um, and this year we have a, a, a even more diverse uh, class. We've got twelve percent uh, Black in our entering class this year, eight percent Hispanic uh, Latino. Now we don't track. Asian students, because in general, they're not underrepresented in medicine. Again, I go back to what our crediting body requires medical students or medical schools to do is to actually identify those um, uh, underrepresented uh, cohorts that um, bring added value if we're looking at a diverse workforce or those that are underrepresented. And you, ha- you have to identify that at the student level, um, at the uh, faculty level, and then at the senior uh, uh, staff development. So for our students, um, uh, those value added uh, uh, minority or underrepresented categories are Black, Hispanic, Latinx, and rural. Because we know that we have, and and Jean, you certainly are very, very familiar with um, the rural underserved areas. And we know that rural students are more likely to go back to rural areas. So we list that as a value added um, category. In order to, they don't just plop into medical school, you really have to have pipelines and partnership um, programs and really pretty early pipelines and partnerships. Um, one of the strongest predictors, if a young black male is going to go on to college is how they score on their third grade reading test, which is just absolutely. You know, as we look at, at increasing the number of black medical students, We've done an okay job in increasing the number of Black women medical students. We have really seen those numbers go up in the last decade or so. The the Black male students, it's been absolutely flat. We have not made progress at all. And, and when when they really looked at things that would move the needle, it's very early pipeline programs, it's mentorship, it is um, exposure early on to um, uh, doctors that look like them, um, to medical students that they feel like, oh, that could be me, I could do that. Now, if you look at, um, at barriers or is it just the fact is it a biologic uh thing and the answer is no i mean if you have two black physicians who have a black son or daughter and they've had all the educational and opportunity uh, increases there's no we're not seeing uh, uh, uh barriers um but if you have a student from um uh, who is economically disadvantaged and you know hasn't had the health care and hasn't had the advising and hasn't had the economic or the uh, educational advantages it's tough to to to, to ensure that individuals is going to go to college much less go on to go to medical school so i think we've been very intentional in our pipelines and our partnerships and and we are seeing that that makes a uh, makes a difference
1: you know, based on what you've just said, a lot of the issues of the pipeline really are beyond your control. I mean, all, Absolutely. Of, the, all of the black males in West Louisville who are running around shooting each other with guns, that, you can't control that, uh, uh, which uh, you, you wonder, uh, you know, uh, that was going to be my next question is how many... You know where do where do the where do the ones that, that get into medical school come from? And I would I would assume to me that there would be a, a higher percentage coming from middle class or upper class backgrounds than the ones coming from the you know the the the, the, the West End of Louisville. And right. I, well, I
3: I think that's that is absolutely true. But if you said the same thing about um, white students you know, if, if they grew up in economically disadvantaged, um, uh, um, homes, um, they are less likely to go to medical school than their middle or upper class uh, counterparts as well. But I think it's particularly true of our, um, uh, of our young black students. And, and so again, early on, I think that, um, they need to be identified and, and nurtured and and make sure that they've got educational advantages and mentoring and uh, uh, support.
1: Now, that third grade reading thing, how, where did that come from? I think I do not know. And actually, one of the, research.
3: <laughs> well, one of my um, uh, Black dean colleagues told me about that. And I've not searched the paper yet, but he said it's he said it's been um, uh, absolutely shown that that's a very powerful predictor of of um, whether they're going to continue on and go to high school, where they're going to continue on and go to college. It doesn't predict medical school, but if you can't, if you're not going to go to college, you're sure not going to go to medical school. Right.
1: That's a fascinating piece of information. Gene?
2: How, has anyone tracked uh, certain groups like, for example, black students? Do they have a tendency to go back to the underserved area and take care of uh, black patients or do they uh, just commingle into the population, uh, regardless of race or other factors?
3: Well, in aggregate, they are more likely to um, uh, to to care for patients from uh, that underserved background, just like our rural students are more likely to go back to rural um, uh, areas.
2: One of the things that we've done, we've been proud of, we've tried to get students involved in uh, career orientation in high school. We have a Medical explore post, which has kind of been down during the COVID, but, uh, we've taken junior and senior high school students and we give them lectures. We let them shadow doctors and veterinarians, dentists, etc. And this has really helped us in the eighties. We did that and we have about seven or eight students who became doctors and we have a bunch who became nurses, et cetera. One of the most important things that we came out of that group is that we had a bunch of students that did not want to go into medicine and (laughs) that's probably more important than the ones who did
3: yeah well and that's a terrific program and I think what it demonstrates is the importance of you know mentoring and role modeling and now what we do know um, about our black students is probably starting in high school is a bit too late and we need to even back that up um, uh, uh, further in terms of, of uh, the mentoring and the uh, uh, and the support. Well,
2: the problem we've had with that is that if we get too young of the students, we have these uh, potential medical legal problems and uh, um, other oh, problems yeah. that I see we're right
3: for shadowing and, and activities. Yes, right. true.
1: Sure. Now to get back to your the uh, earlier comment about um, the patient choosing the uh, female the the gynecologist versus uh, going in and the male and neurology and female and uh, you know m- just one simple example my wife has been treated by both male and female. Um, um, uh, gynecologists, uh, all of whom you know, <laughs> so I'm not gonna name any names, but she is clearly in favor of going to a a female uh, gynecologist, which is which is which is quite reasonable. Now to carry that over a little bit into uh, uh, the you know the black community, there's a there was a there was a JAMA issue in this year in which they addressed a lot of those a lot of those kinds of issues and and there were you know there is a the number of articles that i read that that all came up with the same conclusion that given the option the black community are much more comfortable being treated by black physicians right and taking that one step further apparently there there and there are some some studies that also show that the the outcomes are better in terms of of uh, decreased uh, maternal uh, mortality and morbidity and decreased fetal maternal and mortality. I wonder if you have any thoughts or comments about that, because that, that, you know, all that in plays into the same uh, uh, scenario of of needing to get more uh, black physicians uh, into practice in various parts of the country.
3: Well, I think you're right. And, and I've seen those same studies. Um, what, what probably is at play is, is sort of bi-directional. So that if you look at the um, racial health disparities, for example, um, that in general, um, uh, Black women were less likely to get Mammograms. Um, uh, black patients were less likely to be compliant with hypertension medicine, um, and, and and so there was there was that piece. And is that a trust issue? Is it an access issue? Is it a trust issue? And and if they are more likely to be trusting of uh, of a black physician, they are more likely to be compliant with. Um, uh, suggested treatments, and likewise, it may be that the black physicians are more likely to treat their black patients in a very equitable um, fashion, because sometimes, um, sometimes those patients aren't offered the same sorts of treatments that white patients are uh, are offered.
1: You know, we had a, we had a. a, a... A speaker on uh, I was a month or so last month. Uh, we talked about VA issues, and and one of the aspects of that was was a recognition that in a, in a, not only is the VA hospital a place where the, where the veterans could get health care, but it was also a place that so they could go to be treated where. There was a certain understanding and camaraderie of the things that they went through. So the acronyms right. that they used and the, and the issues of uh, post-traumatic stress disorder related mm-hmm. to deployment, combat and those sort of things. Uh, and and I think in a similar way, when you have um, uh, uh the the, uh, the understanding the language and some of the cultural issues uh, of 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 a of a black uh patient coming to a a white physician and then comparing that with a black patient going to a black physician that there is a similar sort of um cultural understanding that that um that they get in that situation, I, I personally never considered myself, uh, uh, you know, biased or, or, or racist or anything. But I, I you know, I I, 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 I just I don't know that I can understand some of the issues and the cultural situations that 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 are experienced in 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 that community.
3: Uh, well, and, and I think there is. Well, I think there is a level of trust that comes from shared lived experiences. And and so I think that that is part of it.
2: Some of our prejudices are very subtle though. And sometimes you don't even realize it till you get into an experience that uh, you wake up and say, hey, I'm, I'm more prejudiced than I realized I was.
1: Uh, you know, I, I, I agree. I agree. Uh, uh, let's see, uh, probably eight or nine years ago, my oldest daughter um, went to Uganda and adopted a child. And um, I it wasn't opposed to it. I was concerned about all of the issues that this single white woman was going to deal with when she adopted this child from Uganda. And, and in fact, she did deal with some issues uh, in order to get the child out of the country she was accused of child trafficking and had to hire a lawyer and go through a lot of really, really crazy stuff. And this child has just turned out remarkably talented. She has absolutely no accent at all and and performs in the New York uh, youth chorus. So, uh, but I, I personally, as you're right, Gene, I, I didn't know how much of my uh, kind of concern about that was related to the concerns of the factual things or my underlying, you know, bias about things that I wasn't familiar with.
2: Well, actually, in the news just yesterday, there was uh, three people were being prosecuted for uh, child um, uh, putting up children for adoption who were supposed to be orphans orphans but they really weren't wow. so this kind of stuff trafficking does go on
1: oh yeah it was this was a real this was a real thing tony let's sw- switch horses a little bit here i'm gonna okay. try to figure out how to ask you this question i uh, I, I read an article somewhere in i think it was a may have been in jamma new england journal of medicine in which they were kind of addressing the uh the issues uh physician issues dealing with um Uh, with a transgender patient Mm -hmm. and they they the example was given was how to go through the physical examination and figure out a way to address the need (laughs) to do a a prostate exam on a transgender uh a female which i get a little confused about all of the acronyms Mm -hmm. here but that's uh uh, uh, someone with male anatomy who is is identifying as as a female. Could do you could you kind of give us a few examples or how discuss how e- these things are being approached uh, in in the medical medical school?
3: Well, um, I don't claim to have you know content expertise uh, in that in terms of just medical content expertise, but. Um, we do have physicians that are far more in tune with um, LGBT patients um, uh, than others. And, and LGBT patients will gravitate towards uh, physicians um, uh, uh, like that. And, and, and so they would know best practices in, uh, in doing that. But in terms of being a content expertise or being a content expert on that, I, I, I really couldn't claim to be.
2: So this is a big issue. I know of an organization just changed uh, some of their bylaws um, about the transgender issues. They, they said that in order to be a member, uh, you had to be a biological male or a biological female. The problem is I don't know what biological male is. Is that a, uh, uh, XY or the whole transgender issue is so complicated that um, how, how do you deal with that in, the, in medical school? I'm sure there are some people who are prejudiced. Uh, do, you, do you have classes on it? How do you, how do you deal with it?
3: Well, yeah. I think again. I think the two part is um, being respectful and inclusive um, to all of your your peers, your faculty, your um, uh, your staff, and then understanding the science behind um, all of um, uh, the the uh, uh, LGBT issues. Uh, And we do have content experts, and this is part of the curriculum in really understanding those nuanced differences between sexual identity versus sexual orientation, Um, and and, um, then then truly the transgender, which becomes far more complex, either male to female, female to, um, uh, uh, to male, Uh, And you really need a doc that understands those, uh, uh, those unique uh, uh, health needs.
2: Can we, can I change the subject here just a minute to bullying? Sure. I know that's a big issue. And as I think about my career,
1: well, Gene, what two of two of us know about (laughs) bullying, we both went through surgical general surgical training programs. (laughs) Yeah, (laughs) but you know. My
2: responsibility, bullying has been different than a lot of people. I, I remember in undergrad, I went to undergrad at UOL, and one of my favorite teacher was a really big bullier. and then in, in medical school, I won't mention any names, he, he's no longer there. He, he died, but one of my best teachers was a bullier. I mean, and then of course, in uh, residency, the bullying was pretty common. But I was uh, I was kind of liked it. I mean, it made me really work hard and study hard, and and I think the classes that I had with bullies, I did better than the ones
1: I didn't. Tony, you don't have to answer this question if you don't want.
3: <laughs> <laughs> well, I think we have. Um, I think we may have different personal opinions on this and and (laughs) what I would say is that different people learn best in different situations. Um, But at least if you look at the evidence, um, contemporary adult learners don't appreciate being bullied now there is a difference between setting high standards and i think that is really important important um having clear expectations and clear performance standards for your learners is really important but i think you can do that without Belittling them or bullying them, and you know, I mean, it used to be okay for surgeons to throw instruments in the OR. That is not okay now. You know, that is just not okay. And and so I think that there are many behavioral sorts of things that, while once, um, well, I would say, condoned, you know, tacitly condoned by not being confronted. Um, but that's not the case uh, uh, anymore. And the fact that you learned despite, you know, they, they must have set high expectations for you. And so that was good and the bullying didn't bother you. So that worked for you, but you may have had classmates that the bullying did bother and they did not optimally learn from that. So I think that it's not gonna be applicable across the board.
1: Yeah no I I bullying it was is an issue I I going through my surgical career I um, I spent 20 years on active duty in the navy before I went into a surgical residency program and was more comfortable confronting those issues because I think it was important to do that in fact, I wrote an article in Louisville Medicine earlier this year about about that. Uh, when my son was uh, going, he went through a series of magnet schools in in, in Louisville, and and one of those schools, he, he was a kind of a scrawny, small kid, and I um, and I went down, talked to the teachers in the school, and they they all uh, kind of just obviously weren't going to deal with this thing. So I, I bought a punching bag, hunted up in the, in the, in the, in this is, this is not obviously a way to deal with this thing, but this worked in this case. I put it in the basement and show him a punch. (laughs) And he actually got very good at it and told me uh, maybe a year or so later, he was thinking about becoming a cage fighter. And I realized that that probably wasn't going to work out well. Well, he's an F-18 pilot for the Navy now. So at the end of the day, it worked out all right. This really wasn't a good way to deal with the bullying issue, except in this particular case, it it worked. And and I think it's important, uh, you know, certainly as physicians of all categories to be able to stand up to this and deal with it without punching somebody in the face.
2: Well, a lot of it depends on what what you've gone through with previously. For example, when Frank Miller and I started our residency, and we'd both been in the military, uh, we knew uh, a little bit more about life than people who just come out of medical yes, school. Yes, yes. Okay. And we didn't take things so seriously as uh, some of the other people who were.
1: You know, uh, yes, I absolutely agree with that. Uh, well, Tony, uh, that can we let's back to the L- <coughs> excuse me, lbgtq issues. Uh, do you have a sense of of the percentages of of um, uh, in medical school that are that that uh, folks that uh, you know i'm I'm a single white guy and i I've just uh, straight you know, this is something that's way, way off my radar screen so, I can't think of any time during my medical school, my residency training fellowships and even practice when I recognized um, very much of this. And it's, it's much more of an issue today than it was then. So can you put it into a kind of perspective of how much of that's around? I've been retired for three years, so I'm off the off the radar screen anyway.
3: Well, I think if you look at the general population, and again, it this is self-identifying, you know, there are, it's probably much higher that just hasn't self-identified, but it's around 15% that self-identify as LGBT. Um, I don't know if we have a, I don't think we have a trans, I don't think we have any transgender students, but I don't, you know, that probably wouldn't um uh, that wouldn't escalate up to, to my being aware of it. Um, uh, but I do know that, you know, we have a, a number of students who uh, self-identify as LGBT and we've got a, they've got a, a kind of a student support group. So, you know, it's something that's not, um, you know, that's, that's not hidden by any means. We also have a wonderful LGBT uh, uh, center, and we've got um, a, a curriculum that that folks can go through um, and get a certificate in LGBT health by attending, you know, so many of these sessions. And and we've had just a wonderful array of staff. about 100 people do that each year. And it's got there are some residents and department chairs and staff and students. And so it's a pretty broad array of. Um, of our School of Medicine family community that that says, you know what? We want to learn more about LGBT health. We care about health equity. And, and the more we learn about this, the better physicians we're going to be.
2: To uh, people with um, LGBTQ uh, tendencies do they prefer to see other people as uh, patients, and then uh, than someone who is uh, not LGBT?
3: You know, I my my understanding, and I don't have strong statistics on this, but but the studies that I've seen is they want to see an LGBT health competent physician, whether they. Happen to also be LGBT themselves. Again, that might be a, a more of a sense of of a connection and trust and shared lived experiences. But I can't, I, I can't, you know, speak to that uh, uh, specifically. But but they definitely want to see physicians that are competent around lgbt health issues now
1: how would you uh how how would you find that out i mean it's not it's It's word of mouth i mean there's all
3: kinds of word of mouth both good experiences and bad experiences you know avoid this doc go to this doc under no circumstances should you see this doc you know if given any opportunity go see this doc so there's a, a pretty strong um peer community in terms of um
1: uh in terms of that well, well that's interesting because as i was i was just sitting here list thinking and of all in the, for the first i don't know 30 years of my life i don't think i ever saw a physician <laughs> for, <laughs> for anything I,
2: or you had to in the navy
1: well yeah but i that, that was just for an annual physical and but, but I I just don't know that I ever uh, you know I I I had some ENT thing done once that my father took me there and but I, I that's uh it's, it's kind of interesting that 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 information is around and I, I was just thinking in my own experience I I was no way I would have known anything about anybody I never went there.
3: Mm-hmm.
2: Well, mm-hmm. another issue is travelism. Um, uh, give you an example of uh, university has about 250 foreign students. I think they have the largest number of foreign students, any other private school in the state. And if you go in, uh, in the cafeteria at lunch or supper time, all the black football players are sitting at one table, the Chinese students are sitting at another table, et cetera, et cetera. Um, is tribalism a problem in medical school or we sh- should we try to change that or is it just natural to want to sit with a, um, a European colleague who plays soccer?
3: Um, well, that's a tough one to answer. I, you know, we don't have international um, uh, uh, students. Um, you know, they had in terms of just that, you know, they, they come from, Uh, from medical schools usually within, uh, within the United States. If you look at different cultural groups or ethnic groups, you know, they do tend to, you know, I think they probably do tend to naturally kind of congregate together. Um, We need to be mindful as a medical school and intentional to try and um, if we're going to learn from one another and if we're going to connect with one another and there's an inclusive environment, um, uh, I think to, to create some spaces where everyone feels, um, everyone feels welcome, but human nature is human nature. And I don't know that we're ever going to completely get rid of, um, you know, I don't know, guys who went to center wanting to hang out together and, you know, girls who went to Sacred Heart wanting, you know, I I don't know that we're ever going to get rid of that, uh, completely get rid of that um, natural connection. But we do, when when we assign groups, for example, because there's a lot of small group learning that goes on at the School of Medicine, and we are very intentional about assigning groups in ways that, that is, is diverse. I mean, it's gender diverse is, um, as diverse as it can be, um, uh, with racial as diverse as it can be with backgrounds, um, in state versus out of state. So we are pretty intentional about that. And I think things like that then become safer environments when, you know, you, you, Connect with a small group, and even though they're very different from you, it still feels right if you do it right. <laughs> um, and so, I think that that's that's something we do want to encourage.
1: Tony, let uh, me ask you a political question, and if you don't feel comfortable answering it, you 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 may don't have to answer it. And before I do that, uh, Mark is letting us know we've got ten minutes left, so we're okay. getting toward the end here. <laughs> Uh, I remember years ago, um, I think when uh, Donald Swain was president, uh, they declared the university a non-smoking campus and the Kentucky legislature went up in arms and uh, they even threatened to defund the university. I mean, this is. So uh, in our, the legislature today, you know, when you think about some of the things they did to limit the governor's ability to deal with a huge public health pandemic, um, I, I, have you had any uh, sort of pushback, uh, I, you know, when I think about all the people that are marching into frankfurt these days in the legislature uh, with their ideological and political beliefs uh, some of the things we've been talking about and not not exactly thing that these people are wild about have you had any kind of um uh, a pushback or kind of negative response to any of these issues as, uh, from anybody you know who, occasionally
3: who, but it's uh, it, it's pretty rare again i think if you stay um, kind of focused on guiding principles, guiding principles of being an inclusive um, uh, an inclusive institution, guiding principles around health equity. You no, know, I think that uh, uh, that you can mitigate some of the, the discord that comes as a result of that.
2: Have you had any pushback with mandates for vaccinations?
3: Well, you—I mean—you've seen in the news there's there's pushback um, uh, by by the legis- by the legislature on uh, on mandating, and there are differences in opinions, you know, on that. We um, have gotten clarity though that we are indeed subject to the federal. Um, uh, to the federal guidelines or the federal mandates now. And so we will, in fact, we just heard from the president today that, that we're going to be, um, that, that we are subject to that. So we will need to, to mandate uh, vaccines. Now in the clinical, for the School of Medicine, in the clinical arena, since all three, all four of our health systems um, uh, in the city area mandated vaccines de facto. We had to, you know, all of our clinical faculty, all of our residents and all of our medical students had to be vaccinated or, um, uh, gain a, uh, gain a religious exemption. Um, but very, very few, uh, have religious exemptions. And, and while I don't know who those are, it's way less than 1% for our medical students and our, um, uh, uh our residents. So, uh, we we
1: have a very, very high percentage uh, of that. Let me ask you another sort of political question, which again, may or may not be an entirely fair one, but I'm gonna, I'm gonna ask it anyway. Um, as you know, we we are sponsored by uh, an organization that's uh, promoting uh, single, single payer healthcare, Medicare for all. <clears throat> if you look down the road, and um, uh, it, it's not looking so good these days, but if you were to look down the road and if we, uh, the, the, the powers that be in this country, the Congress, Congress, and the executive were to come up with either a public option to uh, 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 support healthcare for uh, those folks who are, are under under. Uh, 65 with an, an, an alternative to the existing uh, different uh, entities providing health care insurance or to establish a, a Medicare for all. Uh, how, would you, how do you see any of that, either one of those or both playing out in the ability to provide health care for uh, the, some of the underserved communities and what effect do you think that might have in the uh, recruitment of of uh, um, black and, 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 and Latino um, um, uh, physicians in, into healthcare in this country?
3: Well, I will be very clear that I believe in access for all. You know what the optimal model looks like is that one pair, and it's all the government. Is it? Um, a governmental option for those that aren't employed and have employer-provided um, uh, health insurance, that I don't, I, I think that that remains to be seen. But I do believe that there needs to be a safety net so that all people have access to, uh, to healthcare, regardless of their ability to pay.
2: Yeah, you know, our president's having a colonoscopy today. <laughs>
1: Well, thank you, Gene. I wasn't, I wasn't, well, well, I was I going, wasn't aware of that. And uh, there
2: have been several Republicans who volunteered there
1: to, <laughs> to do that. Oh, Tony, we're about we're about to the end here. Uh, again, I'd like to. First of all, I'd like to thank you. You are an outstanding uh, guest, and uh, I hope our listeners have learned a lot about. Uh, what a remarkable place the University of Louisville Medical School has become under your leadership.
3: Oh, thank you so much.
1: Would you like to make any final remarks before Mark uh, gets on to do his, uh, his final uh, closure?
3: Just that there are a lot of changes that have taken place in the last decade, and I'm sure we're going to see more changes in in, uh, the next decade. And I think it's important as physicians, as educators, as researchers, that we keep an open mind and open heart and um, keep the first things first. And that's caring for our patients, that's educating our physicians and scientists and our community for good health.
1: Okay, thank you again, Tony. Mark, it's all yours.
0: (laughs) Dr. Gansel, thanks very much for a discussion, participating in a discussion on such an important issue. Um, I learned that um, Dr. Shadley likes to be bullied, and I'll try to uh, uh, help him out with that. <laughs> um, I, I didn't know if uh, you do any recruiting specifically to students who embrace a single-payer Medicare for all system when you're recruiting your students. I, I know that uh, the, uh, the medical school has a, a pretty strong chapter of uh, uh, folks who support single-payer. They've been out to some of our activities, and I really appreciate uh, uh Their uh, advocacy, again, wanted to remind uh, listeners that the views and opinions expressed here on single-payer radio are those of the speakers and not the station, that you can listen to single-payer radio each Monday afternoon at 2 p.m., Tuesday mornings at 7 a.m., and Wednesdays at 11 a.m. Uh, for more information about getting involved with Kentuckians for single-payer health care, you can go to kyhealthcare.org. kyhealthcare.org. Uh, Dr. Ganzel, is there any uh, website that folks can go to to learn more about Ural's initiatives on student recruitment for diversity or anything else that you'd like to uh, share with the community?
3: Um, Well, uh, louisville.edu and then, you know, linking to the medical school and linking to admissions would talk about the fact that we have a holistic admissions um, uh, approach. So we start with talent first um, uh, and then we look for all sorts of um, uh, additional uh, value-added qualities and, and and characteristics as we uh, as we bring in a, a, a wonderful medical medical school class.
2: Good deal, Doctor Shively. Mm-hmm. Any closing remarks? Uh, I think the medical students is doing a fantastic job and. Uh, uh, we need to be very thankful for Dr. Gansel's doing and under her leadership and the rest of the medical professors at U of L. Where U uh, of L is an R one university, and some of the research that's being done there is just incredible.
1: Uh, Tony, thanks again, and keep up the good work.
3: Thank you very much. Good deal. We off the air.